opening day of the trial of Officer Chauvin in the death of George Floyd. How did it go? Who do you think won the opening day? What does it tell us about how the trial will unfold? And what does it tell us about who will win and who will lose? You will hear my analysis on the Dirt Show. Yesterday, the trial of the 21st century began. That is the trial of Officer Chauvin for the death of George Floyd. Now, it began dramatically with a videotape. And the reason that's so important is that many experts and people with experience in criminal trials have concluded that the first day of the trial, the opening statements, uh, the initial witnesses, really determine the presumption that the jury comes to the case with. Juries form initial impressions very, very early. Then those impressions can be altered and changed, and you can, in fact, change the outcome of a case by evidence and by good arguments and by the judge's instructions. But the first day is crucially, crucially important in shaping the jurors approach to the case and the first day was clearly won uh, yesterday by by prosecutors of course they had a weapon uh, at their disposal that the defense attorney simply didn't have and couldn't have namely the videotape and if you see that videotape over nine minutes you want to see this man convicted you really think that you've just seen an image from hell there is no moral, political justification whatsoever for a policeman keeping a knee on the neck of somebody who's already been subdued. He's in handcuffs. There are five armed police officers around him. He was arrested for a counterfeit $20 bill. No justification for doing what Officer Chauvin obviously did, and the tape proves he did. So everybody watching that, video, certainly every juror, certainly I watching it, said to myself, this guy's no good. Uh, this guy deserved to be fired. This guy deserves to be criminally prosecuted. But the question is, does he deserve to be convicted? Do we, the American people, the American citizens, deserve to see a conviction in this case? And that is a very different issue from the factual, moral issues presented by the tape, because the tape as the defense attorney articulately argued, is not the whole case. There are going to be hundreds and hundreds of pieces of evidence. And in the end, it will come down to the tape. Prosecutor saying, believe your eyes. You saw it with your own eyes. You saw the life drain out of this man who was subdued and who was down and who was handcuffed and who posed no threat and who was engaged in no resistance at the time. You saw that with your own eyes. That's a crime. That's going to be the prosecution's case. The defense cases put the tape in context. You don't know what happened before the tape began to run. Uh, you don't know what happened after. You're not aware of the autopsy results. Uh, consider all the evidence. Consider it in, in context. Consider the fact that uh, the police officers were frightened of a mob coming onto the scene, screaming and yelling. The tape shows a little bit of that. Uh, and so what this case is going to be is the tale of the tape, the recording, versus 
the science, the autopsy report, and the issue of uh, causation. Now, there's one suggestion I would make to the defense, and by the way, I'd make it to the prosecution as well. I don't know whether they're going to do it or not. I haven't heard anything about it, but it could be the key to the case. And it's certainly what I would do if I were either the defense attorney or the prosecution. I would immediately make a motion in front of the trial judge asking him to tell us what his instruction on causation is going to be. Because unless you know what the judge's instruction on causation is going to be, it's very difficult to frame your arguments and to decide what kind of evidence to put forward. Now, there I'm sure are standard instructions in Minnesota on causation, but standard instructions almost never fit cases like this. This case is going to be argued as a matter of degree if you listen carefully to the prosecution's opening statement, he's not going to argue necessarily that it was a crime to initially subdue the victim. Not even perhaps initially to put the knee on, whether it was the neck or the shoulder, that too is going to be disputed. The crime developed over time. And that is, it became clear after a minute or two minutes or three minutes, certainly when we're up to five or six minutes, that this is a helpless man crying out to breathe, crying out to his mother, crying out to live. And the persistence of the policeman keeping his knee on the neck or the shoulder and possibly preventing air from coming into his lungs keeping him with his face down rather than in the side position that is generally preferred in a situation like this, that's when the crime began to occur. Now, that makes for some difficulties uh, on, on both sides because the prosecution has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the actions of the defendant caused the death of the victim. Has to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt. Cause can have a lot of different meanings. Uh, Cause can mean but for. But for the knee on the neck or the shoulder, but for the knee, would he still be alive today? The answer to that question is almost certainly yes. Uh, Yes, he may have had a drug uh, in his system. Yes, he may have had a heart condition. Yes, he may have had high blood pressure. But there's no evidence he was just going to drop dead. Uh, when he encountered the police and when he was arrested. Yeah, he was gasping for breath even before he, or at least he said he was, he said he couldn't breathe when he was in the police car. We don't know exactly what was going on in the back of the police car because we don't have a video of that. But we know that he called out about not being able to breathe earlier on. But there's no evidence at all that he would have simply dropped dead from the drugs or dropped dead from the heart condition and, and blood pressure. Plainly, the officer's actions putting his knee on the neck or shoulder contributed to his death, contributed. And so the question is, how much contribution must there be for legal causation to be established beyond a reasonable doubt? This may sound like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, but no, it's a very, very serious question. It's a question that arises in cases all the time. I've had several murder cases, which I've won, on the basis of a causation. I had a case where my client shot somebody 
and uh, the person may already have been dead at the time he shot him, and we were able to disprove. On appeal, we were able to argue that man dies but once, and that the prosecution had failed to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that it was my client's bullet rather than the bullet that hit the man's heart moments before that killed him. We got the murder conviction thrown out. In the famous Klaus von Bülow case, we were able to prove at the second trial after we won the first appeal that her coma was caused by her own ingestion of uh, various uh, drugs and uh, sugar and other kinds of things. She had uh, a pre-existing illness and that uh, uh, Klaus von Bülow did not cause her, her coma. Uh, I've had several other cases in which causation was very important as well. And it depends on how you define causation. So as I've said, if it's but for, the prosecution wins because there's no doubt or very little doubt, certainly not a reasonable doubt, that uh, the victim would still be alive today but for the knee on the neck. So if that's the definition of causation, it seems like a pretty clear victory for the prosecution on homicide. Now, whether it becomes manslaughter, second degree or third degree murder, that's a very different question. We'll talk about that in a moment. And so, but what if the definition is different? What if the judge says that it has to, that, that the actions of Officer Chauvin have to have been the main cause, the most significant cause, the primary cause, the proximate cause, all of these are going to be matters of degree, and you're going to hear testimony from experts on both sides. But the experts on the defense side will say that there were enough drugs in his body to cause his death. But that doesn't mean the death would have occurred without the knee on the neck. It just means there were various contributing factors. The defense's argument is going to be elegant uh, and clear. And it's going to go something like this if the defense attorney does a good job. He's going to say that putting a person on his stomach, handcuffing him with his hands in the back, and uh, putting a knee on the shoulder and neck is protocol. It's been done hundreds of times by the Minneapolis police over the years. And it's never before caused a death. Never before caused a death. So that alone couldn't be the cause. Because if that alone were the cause, there'd be many other people who had died from knee on the neck. So there must be a different cause here. There must be something that distinguishes this case from all the other cases where death didn't result. And what distinguishes this case is drugs in his system, including a drug that he popped in his mouth as he was being arrested in order to prevent the police from finding it, heart condition, arrhythmia, uh, high blood pressure, uh, you name it. So the defense will argue that the very fact that this was protocol and didn't cause death, coupled with the fact that there was all kinds of pre-existing medical conditions, proves that the death was substantially caused by the pre-existing medical conditions, not by the contributing factor of the knee on the neck. Be a hard argument to make, um, because as the prosecution says, you can see him dying. You can see it in front of your eyes. You can hear him dying. It doesn't sound like he's dying of a drug overdose. It doesn't sound like he's dying of an arrhythmia or heart attack. It sounds like he's dying because the air is being kept from him and gradually the air is being kept from his heart and his brain and the autopsy result 
does establish that death was caused by this combination of factors. It's going to be hard. Uh, and that's why I think the defense began its argument by focusing on reasonable doubt, because if they're going to win, they're going to win on reasonable doubt. Uh, the problem is when you start an argument with reasonable doubt, it makes it sound like you're acknowledging that he may have done it, but there's going to be doubt. May have done it, but there's doubt. I would never begin an opening argument with reasonable doubt. I don't want to sit and second guess a lawyer. The lawyer may have his reasons for doing it, but it did not strike me as an effective beginning of an opening argument, especially after seeing the tape and after hearing the extraordinarily effective argument of the prosecutor. I would not have started with reasonable doubt. I would have started with my main argument. This death was caused by, and he got to that argument, and he did it effectively. But I would have started with it. I would have ended with it. I wouldn't have put reasonable doubt in until the closing argument. That's your argument at the end. That's what you say to the jury as the jury is going back to deliberate. You say to them, even if you think it's possible that my defendant did it and is guilty and causation, even if you think that's possible, even if you think it's likely, that's not enough under the law. The judge has told you you must prove every element of the offense beyond a reasonable doubt. If you have a reasonable doubt about any element, any element, you must acquit. That's the closing argument. That's not the opening argument. The opening argument has to be an argument of innocence. Innocence. And then you close with, he's innocent, but even if you're not sure about his innocence, unless you're sure about his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, you must acquit. We'll see. There's a lot more to go. And by the time the trial ends, the openings uh, may pale in insignificance. But I think the openings have a big impact because they help frame the issue for the jury. And I think they, the videotape had a big impact. That videotape is one of the most damning pieces of evidence I have seen in 55 years of practice. And believe me, I've seen a lot of videotapes. I've heard a lot of audio tapes. I've seen a lot of photographs. I've never quite seen anything like that. And the defense cannot and probably will not try to justify, to say that what Chauvin did was right, was good. Uh, they may say it was by the book. They may say that they weren't focused on the victim because they were scared about police. The police were frightened about people gathering around and, and yelling and screaming. They can, they can say all of those things, but they're not going to get up in front of the jury and say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, what Chauvin did was right. We want future police officers to do it. It's the right thing. It's the right approach. That video shows a police officer doing his job. If they did that, they would lose their credibility in one minute. And the jury would come back in, in five minutes with a verdict of guilty for whatever the prosecution asked for. Which brings us to the next point, which really wasn't focused on yesterday at all. The opening argument, the prosecutor skated around whether this was really second-degree murder, third-degree murder, or manslaughter. He called it killings. He called it homicide. He did say murder on a couple of occasions, and he did lay out briefly some of the arguments for why second or third degree murder should be applicable, but that was not at all effective. And uh, it went way over the head of the jury because the jury has to be instructed. And that's going to be a big barrier for the prosecution. Jurors are going to want to convict. Uh, they're going to want to send this guy to jail. But the question is, will there be 
evidence sufficient to convict on a murder charge? I don't think so from what I've seen. The prosecution's theory does not seem to be that Chauvin intended to kill because there's just no evidence that he intended to kill. He was reckless. He was careless. He was uh, oblivious. He didn't seem to care. But I don't think he set out to kill uh, this man. I think he set out to subdue him, maybe to humiliate him, maybe to show his power and strength, all of those things. But intending to kill is very hard to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. But they have a secondary theory, and they can argue that he killed him unintentionally in the course of committing a felony, but that won't work as a matter of law. Because in the felony murder law, felony murder means you go into a bank to rob the bank. You don't intend to kill anybody. Uh, there's a shootout and a bank guard is killed. You're guilty because you were committing a felony, the felony of armed robbery. Or you set out to rape somebody and you rape the person. And in the course of raping them, uh, she dies. Um, that's felony murder. Those are classic felony murder cases. But the key to felony murder is the felony has to be independent of the death. That is, it can't be that you just punch somebody and assault somebody, not intending to kill them, and they die, that that becomes first-degree murder. Otherwise, you'd eliminate all the distinctions between first-degree murder, second-degree murder, and manslaughter. Obviously, punching somebody is part of what caused their death, part of what you intended to do and set out to do. The same thing is true here. If there was a felony at all, and I don't think there was a felony, I think the prosecution conceded that there was not a felony at the beginning. The felony developed over time as he was dying and as the officer should have realized that he was dying and should have taken his knee off the neck or off the shoulders at a particular point in time. So I think felony murder fails as a matter of law in this case. And if he were to be convicted of felony murder, I think it would be reversed on appeal. Virtually every case involving felony murder requires that the felony be separate from, independent of the, of the killing. And so, in fact, there's an example in the statute, uh, shooting, drive-by shootings. When you shoot into a bus, you're shooting recklessly and, and, and the statute specifically provides for that. So we then get to... Third-degree murder, and that requires that you put somebody somebody else's, another's life in danger. And, you know, the, the courts have defined that in Minnesota wrongly, in my view. To mean other can mean anybody other than the defendant himself, which is, I think, an absurd reading of the statute, but it's the statute that Minnesota has set out. So that may be one of the theories as well. That would result in a third-degree murder uh, conviction. But I think it's manslaughter that really applies here. Manslaughter is defined as producing a death, causing a death as a result of extreme carelessness, extreme recklessness, disregard for life, all of the things that seem to be present in this case. And as I've said before, when you have three statutes, two of which don't seem to apply and one of which applies clearly, the general rules of statutory construction are that you apply the one that glove fits, that fits most closely. And that's, of course, the manslaughter statute. Here, there's also the principle in criminal law of lenity. If you have ambiguity in statutes, you resolve the ambiguity in favor of the defendant, not in favor of the prosecution. So if you ask me, based on what I saw yesterday, what the right result in this case would be, it would be no more than manslaughter, not second, not third degree murder. But the question still remains, even for manslaughter, you need causation. And so 
We'll wait and see what the judge charges on causation. We may not know what the judge is going to charge until the very end of the case. That would be a mistake. I think it would be much better for everybody, for the defense and the prosecution, to have the judge give his instruction, even if it's just a preliminary instruction, his instruction now so that the jury knows, that the prosecution knows, and the defense knows what causation means so that they can assess the evidence in light of the law. Otherwise, they're just going to be hearing the evidence. They're going to say causation, yeah, maybe, no, but for, yeah, 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 substantial. But they're not going to know what the law is. And as the judge is going to say to the jury at the end, you're the judge of the facts, but you have to listen to me on the law, but you can't decide what the facts are that are relevant unless you know the law. And so I think it would benefit everybody if the judge were to give the instruction on causation right now. I doubt that that's going to happen, but that would be the best procedure, and that's what should happen. So we're going to keep following this trial, just like the world's going to keep following this trial. I'm glad it's on TV. I get to watch it. I get to be able to talk about it uh, intellectually, uh, based on knowledge, uh, not based on speculation. And also, because people are watching it on TV, the verdict won't be as much of a surprise. Uh, that was true in the O.J. Simpson case. People who watched the O.J. Simpson case on television weren't as surprised at the verdict as people who just read about it in the newspapers through the filter of journalistic bias. So if you have time to watch it, watch it, make your own judgment. Call me. Tell me what you think about the case and how it's unfolding, how you would vote if you were a juror. So please keep the calls coming on The Der Show. Now we turn to the wits part of The Der Show, the calls. First call. Good day, Professor Dershowitz. This is Bob from New York calling. Uh, this call is to thank you so much uh, for your response to my question about the Bill of Rights and are they uh, redundant. Uh, my basic understanding of what you tried to explain is that the Bill of Rights really limits the states from infringing on these rights. The Constitution does, does not give the federal government jurisdiction, but the states might try if not prohibited by the Bill of Rights. That was quite an eye-opening uh, description from you, and I, ho I hope I got it right. And again, thank you so much. Of course, this caused me to go look at other stuff, and uh, we'll call back with some additional questions. Uh, but thank you again so much, Alan. Well, thank you. I love getting a second call and a feedback from my first call and the answer I gave. I'm glad I helped to elucidate that issue. It's a very, very good question because, as you know, the framers debated whether they needed a Bill of Rights, but it never occurred to them that the Bill of Rights or the Constitution limited the states, except in the two or three ways that the Constitution itself limits, no Bill of Attainder, no ex post facto, Republican form of government, but generally the states were free to abolish free speech, as Jefferson essentially argued uh, after he opposed the Alien and Sedition Acts, he said, but maybe the states can limit speech in, in some ways that the federal government can't. So it would be left up to the states. But now that the uh, most of the Bill of Rights are incorporated through the 14th Amendment and apply to the states, the Bill of Rights provides a very, very great protection against state abuse of power. 
Hi, Professor. This is Adam from Michigan. Just a quick comment on your show that aired tonight. The filibuster was intended to prevent against partisanship. It was to ensure the Senate would only pass legislation that neither party could pass unless they had at least some votes from the other side or a 61, 60 plus majority. So the only people that would want to end the filibuster, which is a curb on partisanship, are partisans. It is partisans that want to end the filibuster, and the people that would support ending the filibuster have shown they are putting partisanship over party. Thanks, and I love your show. No, I think you're right. I think we, we're now seeing a partisan effort to end the filibuster, but I can see an argument that would be nonpartisan, that you know the majority should rule, that the minority, whoever the minority is, shouldn't be able to veto legislation, that vetoes under the Constitution are placed in the hands of the president, that if the framers uh, really wanted a filibuster, they could have put it in the Constitution. In fact, I think they made a mistake. I think Supreme Court justices should have to be confirmed by a two-thirds vote the way treaties have to be confirmed. I think that's a mistake. But if we want to amend the Constitution, we can do that. But there's nothing in the Constitution about a filibuster other than that, the Senate and the House can establish their own rules, and the Senate has established its own rule of filibuster. So I think you're absolutely right. Uh, but something can be right, even if it's done for partisan reasons. Let me give you an example. Statehood for the District of Columbia. There are good, strong arguments both ways for whether there should be statehood for the District of Columbia. There's no question that the push for it is totally partisan. The Democrats know they'll always win the District of Columbia. That gives them two senators uh, automatically. So, you know, their arguments are totally motivated by partisan considerations. But in the end, they may be right. Um, and probably the District of Columbia won't be admitted until and unless there is a balancing place that could be admitted that would likely be Republican. That's what happened with uh, Hawaii and Alaska. Uh, they were both admitted at the same time because one was deemed to be Democrat, Hawaii, and the other was deemed to be Republican, Alaska, although Alaska has obviously turned somewhat purple. So uh, you're right. Partisan motivations exist, but that doesn't necessarily always make it wrong. Hello, my name is Fred. I live in Ireland. I think an obvious fact has been overlooked in the Chauvin case. The officers were operating in the context of a pandemic. It seems clear to me that he used the neck brace for the extended period to protect himself and the public from the virus spread by Floyd's respiration. I would also add that the game of rugby is predicated on the formation of scrums in which powerfully built men press on each other's necks. I know it's not an exact analogy, but uh, it's instructive, I think. Thank you. I have followed you since the advocates keep up the good works. Well, thank you. Boy, that's a long time ago. The advocates were in the 1970s. I remember... Um, in 1972, I was the advocate for George McGovern. And in 1970, I went to Israel and advocated for Israel in the Israel-Palestinian conflict. So your memory goes back over 50 years. Thank you for the good memories. That's how my TV career began. I was the, the liberal advocate. Uh, and of course, back in those days, the liberal advocate advocated for Israel. And it was the conservative advocate who advocated against Israel, how things have changed today, at least among some uh, uh, people. And so uh, I don't think I agree with you 
that the pandemic really in any way certainly doesn't justify what happened here. They could have handcuffed him and just left him on the ground until a police car came and picked him up and took him away. Uh, there was no reason for Chauvin to get close to him or for him to uh, no indication that he was going to be going around spreading the virus. Um, and there, there are protocols now with the virus. Uh, putting little tents around uh, people so that they don't spread it, having the police officer wear a mask, uh, all of those things can be done. I just don't think the pandemic uh, provides an excuse. It, it may provide a justification for some of the actions in the case, but persistence of the knee on the neck or the shoulder, when it was clear that he was subdued and clear that he wasn't going anywhere, that he was just screaming and yelling for his life. I don't think any pandemic can justify uh, the last uh, five minutes uh, of uh, the life of, of, of this, this man, of George Floyd. Professor Dershowitz, I would like to know if Attorney General Keith Ellison or any attorney general who overcharges in a capital murder case can himself or herself be either charged with some sort of criminal act? I think leaving the issue up to the voters to decide becomes a political matter. And as you've indicated in the Chauvin case that Mr. Ellison may be, uh, have created these charges more out of concern for the politics of the issue and the appearance of the issue in the, in the uh, so-called court of public opinion rather than in a court of law. I appreciate hearing your response to my question. Thank you. It's a great question. It raises an issue that we talked about previously on the show, and that is uh, immunity. Uh, attorneys general have immunity. Um, sometimes it's qualified immunity, sometimes it's total immunity, but they cannot be prosecuted or civilly held liable for uh, what they did in the course of their uh, duty. So no, even if Keith Ellison was wrong, and I think he was wrong, and I just don't trust him um, to do justice, but I think he was wrong, but he's immune. And of course, now they're trying to take away immunity from police officers, but they want to maintain immunity for prosecutors and for judges. I just don't think that's right. I think police officers are the ones who need qualified immunity most. They have to make the split-second decisions. In this case, as the prosecution correctly pointed out, this was not a split-second decision. This was a nine-minute decision. And clearly, there came a time during the nine minutes, I think it was pretty early in the nine minutes, when uh, Chauvin should have realized that what he was doing was utterly, completely, totally unjustified, immoral, illegal, wrong, and potentially lethal. So um, um, he doesn't get immunity uh, for that. But when police officers have to make split-second decisions, uh, and if they make a mistake, and it's an honest mistake, uh, they should be immune and the city should have to uh, take up and pay. And that's what happened here, too. Of course, the city has made a 20-some-odd million-dollar payment to the, the family of the victim. Uh, and we'll see whether that impacts on the on the jury at all. But um, uh, I don't think Keith Ellison is subject to any kind of civil or criminal liability for uh, being political. As you probably know, I'm opposed to prosecutors being elected. I think it was a big, big mistake of Jacksonian democracy to have elected prosecutors and elected judges. But that's the system we have, and so it helps politicize our system. Our system is more politicized than that of any Western democracy, largely because we elect judges and prosecutors. My name is Mike Norton, and I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma. 
Mr. Dershowitz, I listen to you quite often. I just, I don't ever call anyone or anything, <laughs> but I just watched the video of the George Floyd incident. And, um, yeah, I'm a conservative, and I have been listening to pundits bat this thing around. And as a conservative, obviously, I'm going to believe that side before I believe the awful other side. However, this is not a political situation. What is the definition of excessive force? And I had to tell you, I'm shaking inside after watching that. Well, I have no doubt that under any definition of excessive force, this was excessive force. The problem is the use of excessive force by itself is not a crime. At least it's not a crime that he's been charged with. He's been charged with homicide. He's been charged with killing an innocent human being. He's been charged with murder, second and third degree, and he's been charged with manslaughter. Of course he used excessive force. Um, anybody watching that video has no doubt, I think, that he used excessive force. And the question is, what does that conclusion lead you to Legally, does it lead you to conclusion that he caused the death? Does it lead you to conclusion that if he caused the death, he caused it in a negligent way, manslaughter, in an intentional way as part of another felony? That's why, although the moral case here is open and shut, the legal case is much more complicated. And this is a good lesson in the difference between sin and crime, morality and law. In this case, we may have both, a sin and a crime, uh, but we may have only a sin and not a crime. We certainly have a sin. There's no doubt about that. And uh, excessive force is an element of that sin. Um, and uh, he was appropriately fired. And I think the police officers who stood by and did nothing were appropriately fired. The question now is the criminal one. It's a very, very different one. It reminds me a little bit of the impeachment. Uh, even if you think that President Trump did wrong things, that the call to uh, Ukraine was anything but perfect, that it was a bad call, um, that doesn't mean it was impeachable. Or other uh, a aspects, even if you don't approve of the president's speech, which I disapproved of, on January 6th, that doesn't make what he did impeachable. So here again, we have a distinction between what Chauvin did, which was wrong, excessive, unjustified, violation of every norm and morality that we're aware of, but was it a crime? And if it was a crime, was it manslaughter or was it murder? Those are the issues that have to be resolved in a court of law. And we don't need Al Sharpton to tell us uh, how this case should be decided. Uh, he is standing outside the courtroom um, demanding a different kind of justice than that which is required inside the courtroom. And so, again, this is not a referendum on American justice or Minnesota justice or Minneapolis justice. This is a case involving a criminal prosecution of one defendant. There'll be other defendants as well as accessories later. But one defendant whose guilt has to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt. Thank you for your great, great calls today. The seminar continues. I'll continue to update you on the Chauvin case, but we'll move to other issues as well, free speech issues, what's going on in universities, uh, political issues, a range of other issues. But uh, I'll try to bring you up to date when warranted uh, on a daily basis on what's going on in the Chauvin case, because this is such an important case. And uh, the event at issue, the killing of, of this man, uh, had such an enormous impact on the world. 
and on uh, our quest for justice, our quest for justice, which never stays one. Um, the Bible says, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdof, justice, justice, must you chase after, which means justice never gets won. The struggle for justice never stays won. It's a continuing struggle. Every day, there are new issues. And on this show, on The Dirt Show, we pursue justice actively and aggressively. We need your calls. We need your subscriptions. We need you to tell your friends to listen and watch The Dirt Show. So looking forward to coming back and having more on Chauvin and other matters of your interest on The Dirt Show. An important part of The Dirt Show is your voice, your questions, your comments. Please call 24-7. The number is 216 710 0050. Keep your comments short and to the point. Again, the number for you to call 24-7 is 216-710-0050. Hard questions, criticisms, everything's fine. Just keep your questions short and I'll answer them all on The Dirt Show.